Welcome to More to Come, PW Comics World's weekly podcast of comics and graphic novel news. I am Heidi McDonald, the graphic novels review editor for Publishers Weekly, as well as the editor-in-chief of Comics Beat at ComicsBeat.com. And you can check us out on social media at PW Comics World everywhere, on Twitter, Tumblr, Facebook, just everywhere. So... Ah, uh, welcome. Today I am talking to Luke Healy, uh, the author of How to Survive in the North, a graphic novel published by Nobrow that made our uh, best graphic novels of the year list. But uh, he's done a lot of other comics, and we're going to talk to him about that and uh, all of what it takes to be a young emerging male cartoonist from Ireland today <laughs> in the <laughs> comics world. Um, so, Luke, how's it going? Uh, I'm doing very well, Heidi. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no, this is uh, great. Now, we actually met uh, at the Center for Cartoon Studies where you where you studied, didn't we? Yeah, back in 2013, I yes, think. Yes, it was a while ago. Yeah. I don't even remember. I remember it's like career day, and I know that you, uh, we sat, we talked. I, I don't remember what I said. I hope I was nice to you. <laughs> <laughs> I remember at the time being a little uh, disappointed, but when I look back at the work that I was showing you, then I'm just like, woof! Like that was that was some rough first year stuff for sure. Yeah, working you... at the art school kinks, you know. Right, right. Were you showing me any of the early versions of your book? Because I know that's um, was your thesis project, correct? Yeah, no. This was this was uh, a little while before I started working oh. on that, so. See, yeah. that, but darn it, I didn't recognize a diamond in the rough. I, I missed it. So, you know, that's on me. That's on me. No, um, no, not at all. You were dead on the money. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> well, you know, now I will say, um, you know, I had did keep, even though I don't remember what I said, I've kept an eye on your work and, um, you know, so much good stuff has been oh, coming from your pen. Oh, you. Yeah. But let's go back in time. Uh, you actually went to school... Uh, to be a journalist, correct? Yes, that's true. I studied uh, journalism at Dublin City University here in Ireland. Yeah. And so how did you make the uh, switch from one low-paying career as a journalist to another <laughs> as a cartoonist? Yeah, I've really shackled myself to the like dying medium of print. Um, so I, I, I studied... Um, the way our college system here in Ireland works is a little different than the United States. And when you finish school, you have to choose um, a guided career focused college course so I chose journalism you know when I was uh, just finishing school and it ended up not really being a, a great fit for me I would say um, and so you know I was in college and I was thinking about dropping out and it really wasn't suiting me and I wasn't I wasn't loving it um, and the only thing I was doing at the time that that I was really enjoying and felt like I was doing any sort of good work at was comics uh, in my free time I was doing a web comic which was Oof! Talking about bad, <laughs> bad, bad work. That's those are my my first steps into the the whole biz. Where online doing a, a web comic, um, and I just thought, you know, this is the thing that I love to do, and and I should look into pursuing it as a career. And one night I was just started googling to see if there were any sort of like third level education options for comics, and uh, the the documentary about CCS uh, came up on Google, and I watched it and became completely obsessed and. <laughs> Finished out my undergrad so I could uh, go and do the masters there. Wow! Um, now, had you drawn as a kid? I mean, you know, were you a doodler, or you had no, you know, was it just a part-time thing, or? Yeah, I mean, as a as a young kid, I, I definitely drew, um, and I guess I never really stopped drawing. But I, I was always more interested in the the storytelling side of things. You know, I uh, my sort of dream as a kid was I wanted to grow up and like write Tolkien esque fantasy novels. Mm -hmm. um, and comics uh, came a little later for me. I, I didn't read too many when I was very young, you know, just sort of the, the typical classics, like I read Tintin, Asterix, the, the Franco-Belgian stuff, um, but never did superheroes really. And then uh, in, you know, when I was like a, a late teenager, I, I came across web comics, a friend introduced me to them and, you know, kind of fell in love. Um, comics for me just, I don't know, the, the they, they sort of, that's how my, my brain works, you know, like they sort of, uh, express out loud how I think about things, the sort of like sequence of images. So it just really struck a chord, and and I kind of dove into it pretty head first. Uh, started investing a lot of time in uh, in making stuff, which just because it was fun. Mm -hmm. Well, that's interesting because your style is so dense, and I want to talk to you a little bit more about that. You know, like you'll not only do 
a four panel grid, but you'll do a four panel grid of, of four panel grids. And um, it's interesting that you say that's how your brain works because I think one of the things that makes your work effective is that it is very, um, I don't know, stream conscious is the exact opposite, but it's just very direct. You know, it's so much just a, you know, the clarity, the clarity is there in what you're putting putting out there. Uh, maybe that's something also to do with um, some of your journalism background. I think definitely, yeah, for sure. I mean, I think like the most value. I mean, in retrospect, I, I very much see the the value of all of that time spent doing journalism, but particularly like the sort of ruthless editing that is required when you're writing particularly like news reportage um that i think is is so clear in my comics now if you read them they're like you know just really really aggressively edited which is i don't know i think what gives them their distinct feel mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um now let's let's um let's move forward though to you know your time at ccs which uh well a lot of people in the u.s find it a culture shock to go to White River Junction, so uh, you know because it is—it's kind of a, mon- a monastic. Is the there might be overstating it just by a little bit, but it's you know it's very remote, and you really have nothing to do but think about comics, right? Uh, yeah, pretty much. You know, <laughs> basically nothing else to do. It's a really tiny town. I mean, I grew up in a city, so it was such a change. Uh, I think White River Junction population is maybe two thousand people, something like that. It's really it's it's a tiny town. Um, and if you want to get anywhere and do anything, you got to have a car. And I didn't have a car, so I pretty much just sat inside and drew comics for two years. Wow. Now, what kind of experience? I mean, what did you discover during that experience? <laughs> well, you know, I think for me, the the best thing about CCS was that it just introduced me to a, a world of comics that I had no idea existed. Um you know, particularly like mini comics, alternative comics, self-published stuff that just wasn't around in Ireland um, when I was getting interested in comics. Um, there was like a small zine uh, culture here in like the late 80s, early 90s, but and stuff is starting to reemerge now, but there's not really that same culture of, of self-publishing and small press here that there is in the United States. Right. So CCS is so all about that. Um, you know, they have the the Shoals Library there, which is a collection of, you know, not only graphic novels, but they have tons and tons of zines, mini comics, self-published stuff, older stuff that you just wouldn't get your hands on. Like, there's no way to find a lot of us. Right. Um, and, you know, and not to sort of throw out that I know there's the cliched like moment that a lot of people have that's like, oh, comics can be about anything. <laughs> but I think like what CCS really taught me was like, oh, comics can be like really aggressive about tackling whatever they want, you know, that that mm-hmm. there's there's a lot of stuff that you can do with comics that's just like, I think a lot more visceral than than other media. Right. Um, you know, so I think they're really good for certain certain specific topics. And I just had no, you know, before I went to CCS, I was doing, you know, like uh, young adult fantasy stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, primarily, and that's that's pretty not really what I'm focused on these days. Huh? And so you went through that whole adventure time uh, period <laughs> all on or your sure. own, and you sure. cycle through it. Um, well, you know, I'm I'm thrilled to hear you talk about the library because uh, I I mean I don't know how many of them are still there, but I, for a while when I worked at PW, I would send a lot of our extra books there to the library. So, um, and I tried to send things that were really really off the beaten path but not necessarily in terms some of them were terrible comics but i think they show like you know a little bit of that wow you can do anything when in this in this medium um i do think also though the school i mean certainly james sturm's philosophy really uh really kind of um you know, fits exactly that kind of eureka moment that you're having, and and in a way, it seems like you and I've, another cartoonist who I met at I do remember her because we talked afterwards, soon after was Ellery May Harris, yeah, and, who's another journalist cartoonist, and uh, I think you both are kind of purpose made for the whole uh, applied cartooning theory that James has. Yeah, maybe I'm actually uh, seeing her tomorrow, and oh. I'm flying to London to go meet her. <laughs> Well, yeah. Oh, really? Well, tell her I say hi. I um, will do. Will do. <laughs> it's a small world, this world of it, comics. You know, it? small world when there's airplanes about. Yes, yes. Yeah. Um, well, let's talk about, um, so so as part of CCS, you 
uh, you must do a thesis, uh, which mm. is a longer form comic. And uh, so somehow that was the, the basis of How to Survive in the North, correct? Yes, yeah. Uh, for my thesis, basically, what I presented was the first draft of How to Survive in the North. Mm-hmm. Wow, the whole gigantic book. Uh, yeah, I mean, it was pretty rough around the edges, but I, I presented maybe, you know, 30 completed pages and then, uh, you know, 100 pages of pencils or something oh, like okay. that. Oh, okay. Wow, okay. So you you did complete the, complete the book, or at least the first draft at CCS. Yes, yeah. Now, uh, so... So the book is uh, takes two real things that happen, and then you throw in a third thing that you made up, but that still is relevant to the theme of the real things, uh, which is Arctic exploration and, um, uh, I guess, surviving against, um, well, in some cases, it's uh, self... Um, uh, see now it's uh, like fooling yourself into thinking that something's mm-hmm. going to be successful when it isn't. Uh, and in the Arctic, uh, being fooled by others into uh, you know thinking that you're going to be able to survive on uh, whale blubber <laughs> when there yeah. are no whales. But I, well, how did you get? And uh, you know, but one of them, the, I, I had no idea when I was reading the book the first time. You know, it's it, the basic story. Uh, is about well, there's three, but one of the three stories is about the, this uh, native uh, Inuit woman, uh, Ada Blackjack, who survives for two years in a tent with a cat. And I thought, oh, how cute! What a great idea, you know, to make up the story. Uh, I, I mean, I just couldn't believe the story was true, <laughs> to be honest. Yeah, no, her story is one of the most unbelievable things I've ever read or engaged with. She's an am- amazing person. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so so a third of the book is about her. And she, uh, at least in my view, is the sort of like central character right. of the book. Like things kind of revolve around her, for, for me at least. Right. And, the, and then the other, uh, can you, the other two are another Arctic exploration. Can you, can you t- tell our listeners what the, other, what the whole, all three stories are? Sure. Um, so there are two uh, loosely nonfiction stories and one entirely fictional story in the book. Um, the two nonfiction stories are both about Arctic expeditions that ended up on the same remote island in uh, the Antarctic Ocean called Wrangell Island. The first one is set in 1913, and it's about uh, uh, the largest at the time Arctic expedition ever launched. Um, we follow the character of Captain Robert Bartlett, who is like a Newfoundland uh, folk hero, I guess, uh, for lack of a better term. And he is the ship's captain of the lead ship in this expedition. And just completely everything goes wrong. The ship gets trapped in ice and eventually sinks. And it's just sort of a huge disaster. And he has to try to help his crew. The second expedition is the one that features Ada Blackjack. And she's a, a Alaskan native uh, Inupiat seamstress who goes up on this expedition with four other men because her son is dying of tuberculosis and she needs to raise money to send him to a hospital. Um, and then also things go very wrong, which is like a major theme in any Arctic <laughs> right. exploration story, right. which I didn't realize. I always thought that the the sort of disastrous stories you hear about are the exceptions to the rule, but no, they're pretty much the rule. It always went wrong. Right, right. Um, and then the third story, the fictional story, is set in uh, New Hampshire at a college, which is, I believe, unnamed in the book, but it's based on Dartmouth College, right. and which is right beside uh, the Center for Cartoon Studies. And uh, it follows a professor there who's been placed on sabbatical because he's found to be uh, in a relationship with one of his students. Now, they have the actual diaries there at the at Dartmouth, correct? There's a, a collection yeah. of uh, documents relating to these, these actual ex- expeditions? Yeah, so the man who was in charge of organizing both of those expeditions was an Arctic explorer scientist called uh, Wilhelmer Stephenson. Right. And when in in later in his life, once he stopped all the sort of Arctic, Arctic exploring, he became a professor at Dartmouth. And upon his death, he donated all of his uh, collection of documents to their special collections library. Mm-hmm. So it is just stuffed full of incredible documents. Um, you know, original diaries that are literally a hundred years old, you know, like flaking apart in your hands while wow. you're turning the pages, written on, you know, scraps of paper. And uh, half of Ada Blackjack's diary is written on like a, a book of order forms for camera film. Jesus. And it's just, uh, yeah, the the fact that it's accessible to the public, the fact that I got to like paw through all of these mm-hmm. things is really crazy to right. me. I didn't have to wear gloves, you know, it was mad, but. I wow! Yeah, I, I it it is really um, 
uh, I mean, such an incredible story. I guess it's better known in Canada for some reason, though, um, where it's, uh, you know, like you said, Bartlett's a bit of a folk hero there and so on. Yeah, yeah, he's fairly well known. I think if you, you know, if you Google his name, there's tons and tons of results about him. Uh, He was, you know, placed on stamps. He's he's fairly well celebrated, um, particularly in Newfoundland. But Ada Blackjack's story is relatively unknown. Um, There is one other book about her, uh, a nonfiction prose book um, by a woman named Jennifer Niven that is very good and I highly recommend. but other than that, I mean, I'd never heard about her. I came across, I, the first time I heard about her, I was um, looking up a uh, clothing reference for, for Inuit people for a comic that I was drawing years and years ago and just uh, clicked through to the Wikipedia page that some of the results were from and there were pictures of her and I read her story. Right, right. Well, she's... And then just by complete coincidence, all of that stuff was right next to CCS, you know. Right. So. Well, no, it all came together. I think one of the interesting things about her especially is that... Um, in the book, you show how there was a one of the explorers who was injured, and she tries to keep him alive, but eventually he dies. And uh, I, I guess there was also, when she came back, at first she was a hero, but then it was like, oh, but you let this guy die. And it's like <laughs> yeah, yeah, the press really turned on her. Jesus. Um, it's, it's, she very, unfortunately, she didn't have a particularly happy life after she returned. Um, right. Although, you know, eventually things settled down when she was much older. She sort of um, found peace, it seems like. And uh, her children, uh, the son that's featured in the book, you know, he lived into his late 50s. Uh-huh. Um, so she successfully saved his life, basically, through through doing this this crazy expedition. Right, so, right. so things aren't all doom and gloom. But yeah, definitely, she wasn't uh, the hero that I, I think she should have been. Yeah, it's she, am- yeah, well, it's amazing if you're a woman and you're a woman of color. So somehow you never can do anything right, even if it survives. Seems like the odds are against you. <laughs> <laughs> even yeah. if you keep a cat alive. That's the best part of the story is the cat survived. No, the cat I can't believe survived. she managed to keep the cat alive. It's, 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 it's really such a heartwarming story. But, but you know, what I really love about the book is that you didn't just take this incredible story. And I, as an aside, I, I'm sort of fascinated. There's kind of a whole little shelf of comics about uh, Arctic explorations, Antarctic explorations. There's a couple books about Shackleton. Um, you know, there's Whiteout. There's, uh, you know, Ben Toll did a book about about uh, Arctic expedition. And uh, there's some other kind of comics of adventure, I guess you'd call them. But uh, mm-hmm. I really love these comics. Uh, there's something about snowy expeditions that uh, is is well suited to the medium, but um, but anyway, you didn't just take this really fascinating story, uh, but you wove it together with a modern story, which to me is like you know once again, uh, it's so adept. Uh, you know, oh, you have you. yeah, but I mean, it's like you the 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 prof- the professor is researching the story, uh you know, in the library. So obviously he, that's his connection as he reads it. But then you see, you know, that, that the threats that people have, obviously some are external like a polar bear, but you know, the internal ones also are uh, very damaging. And I mean, it is kind of the, oh, in the olden days, you, you, they had to go to the Arctic and, you know, were facing starvation and going through the, hmm. going through the snows with a, you know, team of sled dogs. And, you know, in the modern day, it's like, oh, did you hear that Professor So-and-so is fooling around with one of his students and, you know, his life is over. So, you know, the threats that we have are, are very different as the, as the media changes, I guess. But, um, but anyway, I, I like the way that you added so many more levels to the story. I mean, what made you think that, you know, wh- why did you make the decision to add the modern day element? Um, well, the the function of it uh, definitely changed over the course of, of writing and producing the book. But at first, what I I really wanted to do was, uh, so so when the, the way the book came together was I wanted to do a book about Ada Blackjack. And I started researching more about her story. And I was reading these original documents. And there were just so many mentions of this other expedition, the earlier expedition with Captain Bartloth. And I thought, this is just way too interesting. They parallel so well, I need to include that. And then there was just so much more information that couldn't have been known to the characters in the book at the time, and I really didn't want to include any sort of uh, extra narration. I wanted it to be directly from from the characters' perspectives. So I originally added the modern storyline just sort of as a way to 
include exposition about things that happened after the the course of events. Um, but eventually, it, it, it sort of transformed into more of a thematic um, pairing with the other two stories. Um, and and for me, the the real function of it in the book, as is now complete and published, is to sort of highlight the nature of the nonfiction stories. Uh, I, I have kind of a, a fascination with nonfiction, the relationship between fiction and nonfiction, and uh, particularly in comics. You know, I think in, in any any medium, you have to, you know, choose personally where you draw the line between fiction and nonfiction, you know, in novels, even in, in news articles. Um, and I think in comics, that distinction is like particularly important to make. And so when I was going through the book and sort of you know, like recreating these stories, you know, all of the events that happen in the the two earlier stories are literally factually true, but all of the dialogue is reconstructed, obviously. Sure. Um, all of the visuals are completely filtered through my perspective. They're based on photos, but obviously not all of them are, not every moment of it was captured on film. Um, and so I paired this fictional story alongside the other two without remarking on it until the afterward, because when you get to the end of the book and you sort of learn that one is entirely fictional, I wanted the readers to sort of like have this like reflection on the book as a whole that sort of is, well, these, these sort of nonfiction strands are not really nonfiction, you know, they're like so highly filtered. Mm. Um, and uh, and I had hoped that like including this fictional thread that's sort of treated with the same level of, uh, you know, like detail and, and uh, deference that when you look back on the book, like, you'll sort of consider the nature of nonfiction in comics, I guess, which sounds really pretentious, but that's sort of the, the point of it, in my mind, at least. Well, it's a very effective way of, of, of like I said, giving the story, uh, you know, added layers, added layers. Um, you, you, you mentioned that the person whose papers are, we were looking at was Wilhelmer Stephenson, and in the, yeah. he really comes off as kind of the villain of the piece. <laughs> you know, yeah. was he really that much of a jerk? Because uh, he abandons the. It's it kind of it makes clear that he just was kind of setting this all up to see what would happen, and really didn't expect people to survive. And when the going gets tough, he's literally like, "Oh, you know, I I got to go over here to get you know get some cigarettes. I'll be back in a few minutes," and you know, never comes back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think the book is definitely very critical of him. Um, you know, you could argue unfairly, perhaps, but he really did do that. You know, he he went up on the the 1913 expedition, and when things were looking really bad, he just took off. Um, you know, he sent uh, in the 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 Ada Blackjack, the 1923 expedition. He sent up five people on this expedition who really had almost no experience in Arctic travel. They didn't have enough resources, and then the ship that was supposed to come and collect them ended up uh, leaving too late, not being able to get there, and leaving them abandoned on this island for an extra year. Um, so, yeah, he. I mean, I think at the very least, he's one of the most irresponsible people I've ever read about. Um, but I think also he's sort of like a silver-tongued, like hookster in my mind. And I've, you know, never met the man, but. I don't have a very bright view of him. Well, I I was so fascinated by the book. I did a lot of reading about um about the, you know, the real life personages and apparently one of his theories was that you could survive uh it was like this kind of dietary thing where you could survive eating nothing but meat and he <laughs> did use the uh the in Inuit as an example of that, but but and it remains controversial to this day because People are pointing out that the kind of uh, meat that their diet consists of is very, very high in fat, which has a lot of nutrients in it. Whereas if you were just to eat chicken, you would not be getting the same nutrients as in uh, walrus blubber. So, <laughs> Yeah, he was sort of obsessed with the Inuit lifestyle, I guess, or way of life. After In the 1913 expedition, when he abandons the ship, he ended up going from Inuit village to Inuit village kind of being taken care of by them, it seems like, um, until he got back to civilization, which, you know, yeah, the people who live up there all the time, like, they know how to survive up there, yet his work constantly is like, well, I figured out how to survive up here, um, and it's sort of, I don't know, I don't, it's kind of arrogant in my in my view, Right. but he, right. Had, he had this theory of the friendly Arctic, that anybody could survive <laughs> there as long as possible, just as long as they had the right knowledge, um, which is, it's not true. 
you know, there's a reason that the Inuit people don't live further north, and it's because you can't live further north. <laughs> Humans can't do it. I mean, maybe with climate change, give it a few hundred years, but, right. Right. you know, yeah, it's just exactly. not current. Yeah, well, that's why they call it the Arctic, I guess, the Arctic. Mm. Um, well, uh, once again, you know, the book is, is uh, full of, of fascinating characters, and... Uh, but and it's a, a junior literary guild selection, correct? I don't. I'm yeah. Not, yeah, I should know yeah. this, but what does that mean? Um, so the junior library guild, from from what I know about it, it's basically like kind of like a book club that services uh, libraries, and they select uh, a few books every month, and the libraries that are subscribed to them get copies of those books. So How to Survive in the North was one of their selections for 2016, and it's got to libraries all around America, which is very cool. Great. Now, how did you get hooked up with Nobrow to publish um, this book? I, I first... Uh, I met Tucker Stone at an industry day at CCS the the next year, the year after I had my critique with you, Tucker was there. Um, and so I met him and he liked my work, but I actually, they had just opened submissions. So I just submitted it into their open submissions. Right. Mm -hmm. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, well, it does have uh, 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 the color. You use color very, very effectively in the book. And of course, no, no brow book could be published without... <laughs> Uh, a very effective color scheme. So uh, I'll, I'll admit that I had my my eye on them <laughs> from conception. Right, right. Well, it's it seems to have uh, worked out for everyone. Now you have, if you go to your uh, website, you have a lot of other comics that you've done, uh, and they're all free to read, which uh, is interesting. Uh, now one of them is is kind of a companion piece. It's a mini comic. Uh, that was nominated for the Ignatz, uh, the unofficial Cuckoo's Nest Study Companion. So this is a book that you worked on while you were making How to Survive in the North? Or? Uh, I wrote it while I was drawing How to Survive in the North, and then as soon as I finished uh, up the final work on How to Survive in the North, I, I moved on to Cuckoo's Nest and, and drew all of that. Mm. Um, yeah. And now this, this is a very different work. <laughs> this yeah. is all made up, I suppose. <laughs> Uh, and it's more, uh, I don't know, multimedia. It's a very sophisticated piece of work, I will say. Oh, well, thank you very yeah. much. And, um, but I guess it does, now that I've heard you talk about the use of nonfiction and so on, uh, and how it reflects on comics, I, this is definitely, uh, The Unofficial Cuckoo's Nest Study Companion is definitely kind of a meta fiction about, about storytelling, I think. Yeah, for sure. And and for me, looking back on it, which I didn't really realize while I was writing it, but looking back on it, it's totally about the process of making How to Survive in the North. <laughs> it's like one of those annoying things. Anytime you make something, like, oh, it's all about me. Shoot. Uh, now, the story involves a woman making a, uh, making, uh, she's a, a theatrical director, I guess, and she's asked to uh, direct a adaptation of this uh, very po uh, critically lauded but little known book and the book is a <laughs> I loved your description of the book it's about a guy <laughs> who uh is from Ireland and he goes through his father's house and uh the, the two thirds of the book are just him walking around the house looking at things yeah <laughs> that's such a great idea oh thanks yeah, yeah that was sort of my I like what could be like a prototypical sort of like airy artsy difficult to adapt book you know mm -hmm. and uh anyway this but you so you can read this for free online but is it also available in print or um it was i don't have any available right now but hopefully uh soon in the future okay uh well now so here's what i i was i was excited to talk to you for many reasons but but also, one of them is that uh, you are uh, a young emerging cartoonist, as we say, uh, a young emerging male cartoonist. And um, how on earth do you make a living doing this? What are your plans for that? <laughs> what do you do for a living? I mean, like, you give away these great comics for free online. Like, you know, like, what's the deal? Um, okay, that's a... So... I guess it's complicated is uh, the, the general answer to that. Um, but so I've been working freelance full time since I graduated. Um, and that is the last three or coming up on three years, I guess. Um, 
Uh, but I, I'm calling an end to it this year. Uh, so when I graduated from CCS, you know, I, I pretty much straight away afterwards got the the book deal with Nobrow for how to survive. Um, and because that book, you know, it's not a super lengthy book, but it is quite dense and involves a lot of drawing. Um, I knew that I'd, I'd need to work on that full time. So I like moved back in with my parents and like worked on that pretty much full time and then did, uh, did other comic stuff after that. Uh, but since then I have been making, actually I make most of my money doing uh, color flat flatting for other cartoonists. Uh, I did a book with Lucy Nicely, Something New, which is out. And I just finished up doing color flats on a book with Abby Howard called Dinosaur Empire. Um, But I also uh, make short comics for places like The Nib and for Vice. And I do some illustration work. And occasionally I'll do more commercial stuff. Like uh, last year I did comics um, about sort of about David Foster Wallace because there was a film about him coming out for A24 Productions. Um, but you know, it's been pretty lean. Um, you know, I, I make a, an acceptably sort of impoverished living from comics. Um, but I think that, uh, for now I'm going to, or moving forward, I'm going to focus on, on doing another book for sure, but I'm, I'm not going to try to have comics be the sort of like financial fulfillment in my life. I'm going to get a day job, Mm, go back to that noble profession. (laughs) Oh dear. Uh, well, it is fascinating because I, or alarming, really, because um, obviously you have um, a lot to say. You have a very distinctive style. Your works are uh, very multi-leveled, as I said. I mean, it, you know, at CCS. The the problem with CCS is that it's just turned out this this elite cadre. <laughs> of incredible storytellers you know i mean they really they they have it down to a science you know they get them in this monastery for two years and you know they teach them the dog the dogma of comics and um you know i've just seen it everywhere i mean everyone's game has been upped when you look at books that are coming out from retrofed and from you know frontier i mean this 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 um, format of the of the short story or kind of the comics novella, which is certainly what Cuckoo's Nest is, you know, it's like forty or yeah, it's like sixty pages. Yeah, but I but but uh, you know, it is it is sort of like um, they're like indie movies. They're very yeah. Uh, they're they they don't state anything. Obviously, I mean, <laughs> it's you know people have. Uh, I know there's a lot of people who love Noah Van Skyver and, and myself included. I mean, he certainly had a breakout year, and uh, actually he went to study at the Temple of of CCS as well. <laughs> but uh, you know, his autobiographical comics are are very clearly in that tradition. You know, I mean, there was this whole time in the '90s when autobiographical comics were were the only thing people did and I mean it's so obvious you know what people would joke about is like oh I woke up this morning and you know I went to the coffee shop in White River Junction and you know and then I looked mm-hmm. around and I thought that yeah you know it's just very direct I and mean, whereas now it seems like like the fictional level of these works I mean you know you said that you did Cuckoo's Nest while you're working on this graphic novel. You know, it could have just been like, I woke up this morning, and, you know, I showed some pages to people, and I wasn't sure if they liked it. And, yeah, you know, the showing Helder, uh, which is a comic Chester Brown did about making a comic and sh- about his friends and showing it to his friends. Um, mm-hmm. You know, so instead you did this very multi, as I said, multi-leveled, multimedia, um, you know, very... Um, you know, uh, for, formal, formally complex work. Uh, so I think that's kind of a CCS trait. <laughs> maybe I'm overstating it, but... Um. I mean, maybe definitely there... You know, it's funny. Um, I look at... Particularly, I look at Cuckoo's Nest, and I, I see so many parallels with a book that another CCS crowd put at this year, which is Luke Harrod did a book called Our Mother, which I think is really good. Yeah. But they, like, both incorporate comics... And they both sort of like mix up the the comics grid in like an interesting way and like chop together sort of like converging narratives and stuff. So I don't know. Maybe there's something something there that specifically is like promoting this kind of work. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm not sure because I, I equally look at so many other graduates of CCS who, you know, aren't aren't really interested in, in this kind of thing. You know, people who 
are more interested in continuing to work on genre comics and stuff. And I, I don't say that in any kind of dismissive way, um, because I think that that work can, you know, be just as just as good and just as valuable. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Don't, don't, I don't know what I'm trying to say. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I, I mean, that's more of an observation from myself as someone who's who's been, you know, reading indie comics for for 20 plus years. Well, now it's 20, 26 years. Anyway, uh, you know, one thing you mentioned. You also did an interview with um, Alex Dubin for the Beat, and you mentioned mm-hmm. that I think it was there. Uh, I know you're on the, the the promotional trail for the book, but but where. Uh, I mean, you do draw on a, on a grid generally, and mm-hmm. your style is very—I uh, guess you'd say—Lynn uh, Claire. Uh, I mean, you don't use a lot of blacks. Uh, you know, you keep very simple ink lines, and you also kind of—do um, you said that you 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 like having mid figures, or you know that that? Yeah, I tr- yeah the the my well the sort of joke at school was that that I always drew so many like tiny little people right. um, in my panels because I also draw my comics quite small I'd usually draw them at size um, so my my like unofficial rule is that half the panels on the page the characters at their full stunning height need to be half the size of those panels so right, right. just really teeny tiny right I have a feeling that when I critiqued you at CCS I probably commented on that. I think possibly. Yeah, because that would probably have been a bugaboo of mine. And also because there is a tradition of comics in the UK where they draw full figure. There's a, Mm -hmm. like, especially the kids' comics, they draw people actually standing on the bottom of the panel. Yeah, definitely. uh, Some people consider a no no. I mean, is that, did you read the, I mean, you said you weren't that big into comics. I mean, do you think maybe some of those uh, snuck in by osmosis? Sure. Um, I mean, I, I definitely read some of those as a kid, the Beano and the Dundee are the two sort of big ones. Um, uh, I definitely read those when I was a kid. I think for, for me, the like big influences really came when I was at CCS um, in terms of comics. Like I, I got really into reading Hergé, which I think is like, you know, definitely had to survive in the North is like heavily referencing Tintin books. Um, but you know, people like Pascal Girard is somebody who whose work I like, and his has this sort of like airy, like almost removed uh, perspective. But I think the real the real heavy influence in terms of how I stage panels and scenes is actually television. Mm-hmm. Um, when I look at my comics, like they look like stage sitcoms, um, like Friends or something, because everybody's like cheating out to the reader. They're all sort of just like arranged. Mm-hmm. with this like fourth wall put in place and and part of the the reason that um the cuckoo's nest is about a theatrical production is because i wanted to sort of like comment on that mm-hmm. um because so much of the comic takes place on a stage and the the people in my comics are always positioned like they're on a stage right does that is that um i mean is this how you i, I guess you know that's just like you said it's how you see things though i mean it's just a mm-hmm. natural it's just like a really natural style for you um yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I mean, I notice once in a while you do a close up because I'm I'm always a big adherent of, of you know the close up as the moment of drama in comics, mm-hmm. uh, and you do you hold back from them quite a bit. Yeah, well, I, I love I love that kind of um, cognitive dissonance or like that sort of you know like almost contrarian mm-hmm. like stance where I think of like Coen Brothers movies a lot or like Paul Thomas Anderson movies where at the moment of like the highest tension, we get to see our character like in the distance reacting. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think there's something kind of powerful about that. You know, I think like body language communicates a lot, but also just, man, there's nothing that um, communicates frustration better to me than like a tiny little person in a huge space, Mm -hmm. just like raging. Right. Right. That is true. No, it's definitely a, a stylistic decision. So, uh, but it's interesting because I know, you know, for a lot of cartoons, the cartoonists, you know, the dramatic close-up is the, the, you know, it's one of those Alex t- or Wally Wood 22 panels. Sure, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Things that you go back to over and over again. Um, You also uh, work on, uh, I'm looking on your about page here because I want to get the name right. Uh, you also work with uh, some of the local cartoonists there and with something called Dog City Press. What's What's that? 
Uh, Dog City was something that I, I started doing when I was at CCS, actually, with um, two other students who were in my class, uh, Juan Fernandez and Simon Reinhardt, who are also both excellent cartoonists. Um, and we started publishing these sort of like elaborate comics anthologies mm. that uh, the sort of like ethos of them was that we liked reading mini comics and we liked things that mini comics could do that, you know, like traditionally banned books and graphic novels couldn't do. Um, and so we made these like highly produced sort of cardboard boxes filled with, you know, like a dozen mini comics per issue inside rather than, you know, commissioning cartoonists to sort of fit everything into this like tight book mm. or with a tight theme. We just sort of like let everybody go wild and then mm. brought it all together as best we could using design as the primary tool. Right. And so we did three issues of the boxes. And then for the fourth issue, we got a, a list of cartoonists and then we paired everybody off in groups of two and everybody had to make collaborative comics that weren't with the traditional writer artist divide to see how people could find another way of working together as two cartoonists and and we'll we'll probably do a fifth issue at some point but it's it's um man we're all busy you know <laughs> yeah yeah um yeah i'm surprised that sounds like such a great uh fantastic um format for for this kind of collection um, I imagine they were those. Fun to work on. Yeah, Definitely I imagine. A headache, though. I imagine these are also uh, out of print. So. Yes, uh, <laughs> some of them are available as PDFs. I think if you go, I think dogcitypress.com. Mm -hmm. Some of them are available, and the fourth issue with all the collaborative comics are still available. But yeah, the boxes right. were super limited edition because they're all printed by hand. And right. And right. Was, yeah, a lot of work. Now, I want to go back for a minute, though, to uh, to the question of you know making a career in comics, because I think that's another thing that they they give you a lot of background in at CCS. And but as your own story shows, it ain't that easy. Um, nope. I mean, what are your I mean, so what are your overall goals for this for your for cartooning career? You know, I think um, particularly in the last 12 months, my priorities have changed a lot um, with regard to making comics as a career. I feel like while I was at CCS and right afterwards, I was like very gung-ho about uh, making it work, uh -huh. um, and which which was good. I had a lot of good experiences with that. You know, I, uh, some you know some cool people published my work, and and you know occasionally I got a, a nice payday. But really, you know, it's it's not that sustainable. Um, I, going forward, am more interested in, I guess, like different kinds of storytelling and creativity, like transferring the skills that I, I've learned through making comics and trying to trying to use those in other media. Like I, I'm getting really interested in screenwriting lately. I think I'm going to give that a go. And for my next book, it's going to be sort of like a even pushed further multimedia comics prose uh, hybrid like the Cuckoo's Nest story is. Um, and I, I guess like if we're, you know, I think of comics as, as my art, um, you know, not to sound pretentious or whatever, but like I, comics are an art and that's, that's how I, I view it. So I'm always trying to, trying to frame them in that way. And moving forward, I'm more interested in pushing that into sort of like a publication arts, book arts direction, like, you know, where the, the me my medium is just a, a printed book and that's it. Anything that can go in is fair game. Um, anything that you can put on a printed page works. Uh -huh. um, and so, yeah, that's that's more the, the dis direction I'm trying to go in right, right now. Maybe less pure comics. Right. Well, no, I I, th I think there's a there's a lot of crossover, and I'm actually very excited to see what the hybridization come you know what out comes out of this kind of development that that this multidisciplinary development i suppose one might say yeah there are definitely some cartoonists who are uh, have been pushing those boundaries for a while like posy simmons i think mm -hmm. comes to mind for me most of all she does that kind of um hybrid stuff really well and andrew hussey who, who did uh, ms paint adventures i think was like really i think when people look back at, at you know the 2000s and comics he's going to be like just the most influential cartoonist because <laughs> um, he just really did some wild stuff. Um, yeah. If you can and... find it, man, I, I mean, you gotta be <laughs> like that. That's a, that's a real, sh um, you know, uh, gender gap thing or not gender, excuse me, uh, generation gap there. You know, it's like, do you, are you, 
young enough to read Homestuck. <laughs> yeah, maybe. I mean, it's like no matter what, it's definitely an investment, a time investment to like dig into that thing because it's colossal. Mm-hmm. I think I heard once that it has more words than Ulysses. <laughs> I'm um, sure. Yeah. Something. I mean, and it's also, I, I guess, I, I don't, I'm, can it still be experienced? I mean, I, I, I thought there was some kind of real time things that went on with it that were a huge part of the Homestuck experience. Definitely, yeah. You got definitely you got a lot from reading it along with everybody else. Uh, there were tons and tons of inside jokes and stuff, but I think it probably would still translate well if if someone went back and read it now. Right. Uh, so obviously, I don't have that perspective. So you were you were reading it when it was coming out. Yes. Yeah. Pretty much from the start. Um, I think that guy's a genius. Yeah. Well, he is. I mean, he definitely is. He's he's definitely someone who's like in his own. Uh, I mean, even though I couldn't get past maybe the first 100 screens of it, I, you know, his talent was was really obvious. Um, so, uh, you know, what is the, I mean, what, what's the scene like there in in Ireland for you? Also, I mean, I understand it's kind of an emerging scene there. Yeah, definitely, definitely. I would say it's it's pretty young. Um, I think like comics in Ireland it comes with the sort of big waves. So like in the nineties when alt comics were really big, uh, you know, there was the sort of the, the Irish version of that. And, and uh, you know, in the sort of like early mid two thousands, like when mini comics were coming around, there was like a little hint of that. Mm. Um, right now uh, the, the comics community is definitely growing. There's a great group of Irish cartoonists. Uh, their group name is Stray Lines and they put on a, a monthly event for lots of people to come. Uh, in Dublin City and and talk about comics and sort of like share skills and and build a community together. They're really doing a lot of great community building work. But certainly it's, it's, I mean, it's just, you can't compare it to to how things are like in America. Like I was at SPX just in September and I I wouldn't even know how to begin explaining that to to the cartoonists in Ireland. You know, I could come back (laughs) with a stack of comics, you know, just like 60 comics and, and hand them all out. And I feel like all of them would just be like, you know, I, I I like I, I like that the community here is growing, mm-hmm. um, and I I appreciate all the work that people are doing, and people are making really good work here. But you know, it's still the kind of thing that if you're in a conversation with somebody, they're like, you know, oh, I just heard of this cool comic. It's called Blankets. Like, have mm-hmm. you ever heard of it? You know, and I'm like, oh yeah, you know, okay, cool. Oh dear. Yeah, well, know, so it's, it's, there's some really talented, passionate people here who are working hard. So well, I. I, I yeah, I mean, that's one thing. I, I, I mean, I've been doing the beat for, mm, let me see, uh, a long time. Uh, now it'll be 15 years this year. Yo. Oh, uh, yes, thank you. And, um, uh, you know, I've, I've been tracking this very closely. Of I, I, And I mean, in 15 years, I've actually seen, you know, some countries... <laughs> go from like zero to 60 like Germany you know I mean they, I, I, when I was first started writing about comics I was like how come there aren't any German cartoonists you know there's so many French cartoonists Belgian Italy Spain they love them uh, and Germany definitely was lagging behind but now they have this you know really vibrant scene there and they have some great publishers mm. and um, so I mean it is this you know I call it Johnny Comic Seeds you know they're like they go out mm. there and uh you know plant the seed and and people start reading you know it might be like a chris ware or it might be a a allison bechdel or it might be one of these you know really great works and people read it and then they're like you know the seed is planted and everybody wants to do Mm. it it's very participatory which is so interesting to me well it feels like i think the one of the best things about indie comics is that you know the stakes are really low um, <laughs> because even the most successful cartoonists are still like, you know, they'd make more money if they like quit and got a regular job mm-hmm. just you know, kind of in, in, in many careers. Um, and and I, I like that, you know, I think it's important. I think it's important that, you know, sometimes it feels like, you know, these kind of small comics that they don't matter and they have no impact because it really frees you up to just do whatever you wanted. Right. Like if I was truly, you know, dependent on, you know, making my like life career living out of comics, I never would have had the sort of latitude to make something like Cuckoo's Nest because it, you know, it didn't make any money. I mean, it did well for me in that it got nominated for the Ignatz Award, but like kind of nobody read that comic. 
Um, so, but I, I like that. I think it's better for us. Right, right. Well, I, I think, I think there's a. It's like it, I, I compare it to indie music all the time. You know, there's a band that you love, and they put out a. In the olden days, it would be a seven-inch single, and you know, people would be obsessive about that. You know, now it's it's MP3s, but I, I do think that these these mini comics are like that you know they're they're like like singles that come out and and the people it's, it might be a small audience but they're very passionately devoted to it you know you mentioned that you you do comics for um for vice and the nib and uh those are really two of the only places that uh pay for comics aren't they yeah yeah pretty much um there are th- <laughs> yeah pretty much the nib pays really well too like they're they're so like the nib treats comics like how other online uh publications treat you know prose journalism mm-hmm. um and that i think is like their strongest benefit i think it's why they turn out a consistently good work and i think it's why they they treat the cartoonists who work for them with, I think like the respect that it's hard to feel from other publications sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I think that they're like when they uh, closed down a year ago or two years ago, whatever that was before they sort of were reborn um, at first look media, I think that it left a hole. I think, you know, mm-hmm. absolutely. And, and I'm, I'm really glad they're back. I mean, not just because they, you know, I recently made a comic for them and got paid, but also just because I think they're, they're a really healthy Lego block in the the comics wall, you know? Yeah, they totally are. And, uh, you know, Matt Bors does an incredible job. And, and Ellery, she's also one of the, uh, uh, you know, she found the perfect job for her, actually, given her, yeah, uh, totally. her, her background in journalism and comics. Uh, no, I put them on my best of the year list. And, you know, of course, it's the liberal uh, comics, you know, Trump <laughs> totally. stuff. But, but they publish a lot of things that are really just social commentary there, too. And, you know, it's more than just the daily, you know, dumpster fire of Trump, which, you know, God knows this site is going to be insanely popular for the next four years. Um, but, uh, um, yeah, well, it's, it, thank God they exist, and I hope they exist for a lot longer. And fingers um, crossed. Yeah, so so Luke, uh, so do you have anything else coming up in the near future that we should look for or, you know, going off to uh, the next phase? Uh, I'm sort of regrouping. 2016 was like when all of the stuff that I've been working on sort of hit hit shelves, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can read a lot of comics on my website, uh, LukeWHealy.com. And uh, How to Survive in the North is actually getting a paperback release next year. So you can definitely keep your eyes out for that. Okay. Well, Luke, thank you so much for joining us here on More to Come. And uh, I'm sure there is more to come uh, in your comics career. And it sounds like it's going to be pretty exciting stuff. So uh, we'll be looking for that. Well, thank you so much for having me.